0: Cool. Good morning, Willow Byrne. It is good to be with you, worshipping God together. It's always good to do that. It's also nice to have more McIntyres in the house than we can handle, but that's okay. And nice to see a few other faces around as well, which I'm not too familiar with. Uh, so, I uh, have a confession to make. I'm very tired, mostly due to a week of over-socialization and a few poor choices as to sleep. Uh, so, if I get tongue-tied or talk like a... German uh, World War II fighter. Um, (laughs) Forgive me, slow me down and stop me. Um, (laughs) Revelation 15 is our passage today, continuing our Revelation Do These Words series. Uh, So we had 14 last week with Adrian and we're moving on more rapidly now. Uh, This message was supposed to be called um, Seven Angels, Seven Plagues, but I think I'd rather call it The End Is In Sight. (laughs) because the end of Revelation is on the planner now. Um, And it's also, we're in 15 and it finishes in 22, so only seven more chapters after this. Um, I'd also like to remind you of our guiding principles for preaching through Revelation, uh, as I do most times when I talk about Revelation. So um, we committed at the start of Revelation to prepare all of our sermons according to the following four principles. We want to do the words of Revelation, the prophecy, as the blessing that Rick just mentioned talks about. We want to rely on the Holy Spirit to know and do the words of the prophecy. We don't want to overinterpret or underinterpret the words of Revelation. So, in a nutshell, that means we don't want to get stuck with a particular interpretation and follow that so much that we lose any other interpretations or applications. And number four, we want to seek our meanings and our context for Revelation from the whole Bible, from the rest of the Word. So, in light of that, if you've been listening to our Revelation series online, or just if you have a really good memory and can remember each one we've, we've preached to, you might have noticed that the individual messages can seem a little bit disjointed. Like, this was mentioned to me during the week, somebody said, it doesn't seem to be any real flow from week to week. We've got three different guys preaching, and they're all sort of bringing their own take on it. And I said, yes, that's true, but that's also okay, because we're not actually committed to one particular theological interpretation, or one pre-mill, post-mill, or any of those other kinds of things. We're actually just trying to follow these four principles and see what's in there that we can do, do these words. That's why we called it that. So there is a flow, there is a grand theme, and the best way to get familiar with that is actually to get into the word yourself. Read and study Revelation for yourself. Um, No preacher can be a real substitute, a true substitute for spending time with God in his word. So don't just listen to me or Ben or Adrian or anybody else up here. Get into the Word, check what we say, find out, and come and ask us. Talk to us, ask us questions. We're learning the same as you, and we are definitely not above reproach. So come and talk to us if you've got things. So with all that said, I'm going to pray, and then we'll get right into it. Lord God Almighty, thank you for your great and marvellous deeds. We've seen them for ourselves, and we've heard in your Word and from the faithful witness of people down through the centuries. Thank you that you know the beginning from the end and nothing is hidden from your sight. Thank you for drawing us to yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ. And thank you, Jesus, for holding out to us the offer of an eternity with you, of praise and purpose and reconciliation with God. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for coming to us and being our guide, our comforter, our teacher. Please come upon us now, come upon me, and don't allow me to say anything that isn't from you. And Also open the ears and eyes of the hearts of your people and don't allow them to hear anything that isn't from you. Please lead each of us into your truth and as as Jesus promised when he said he would send you, guide us into all truth. Amen. Okay, so let's read the passage. Um, Mostly going to be in 15 uh, today, but I am also going to jump back to chapter 8, so if you want to mark that, that's going to be, we're going to be there a bit as well, so 15 and 8. But 15, verse 1, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. Great and marvellous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Sorry, I can't sing it. I don't know the tune. After this I looked, and I saw in heaven the temple, that is the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened out of the temple came the seven angels with the seven plagues they were dressed in clean shining linen and wore golden sashes around their chests then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of god who lives forever and ever and the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of god and from his power no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed so it's only a short chapter there's some interesting stuff in here. One of the reasons I really like the, the guiding principle about seeking, um, uh, seeking interpretation and context from the rest of the word is that you don't have to treat each of these as a standalone thing, but you can see how it fits in with what's happened previously. And there's a lot of references here to things that have happened, even in this short chapter, to things that have happened in the past. We'll look at some of those. So, the end is in sight Revelation 15. Only seven more chapters to go. I'm sure you've all heard the saying, there's a light at the end of this tunnel. It's used to encourage people that they're nearing completion, they're nearly through something, usually something tough, a hard time, exams, a hard time at work, maybe an illness that they're about to get over. Um, Usually there's a feeling of better days ahead when someone says that. So Sarah and I have to go to Brisbane quite a bit for work or for Naomi, and recently we're driving through one of the tunnels, which we shouldn't have been in because I took a wrong turn, thinking I knew better than the GPS, and we ended up in the CLEM7. I mean, we had to go through and then we had to come back and tolls are annoying. But anyway, I'm thinking, while well, I'm grumbling away to myself and she's trying to be all positive. I'm thinking, what's the light at the end of this tunnel and why do people think that's a good thing? It might not be a good light. It doesn't have to be nice, sweet sunshine. It could be a raging fire that you're about to drive into. If you're in a, if you're in a subway train, it could be an oncoming train. <laughs> Probably not a good thing. Um, this is nearing the end of Revelation and I find the middle of Revelation a bit like a dark tunnel it's kind of plowing through all this wrath and judgment and bad stuff happening and you know more and more things which are hard to understand happening that hurt a lot of people but when you get to 15 there's a turning point the end is in sight and it happens right here in verse 1 I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign seven angels with the seven last plagues last because with them God's wrath is completed I think John's almost trying to convince himself as he writes that down. There's the last one, guys. Last, because with them it's finished. God's finished his wrath. He's finished it. So, um, another thing I wanted to point out from just that verse, um, he uses the phrase, another great and marvellous sign. Uh, he's used that twice before, back in chapter 12. Now, I said we're looking at 8, but if you're near 8, you should be able to see 12 pretty easily with a turn of the page. Um... Verses 1 and 3, he refers to both the woman and the dragon as great signs in heaven. So, just a link up there, um, when he uses this kind of great and marvelous sign language, it's in reference to something is about to happen. So, this third great sign in heaven is our seven angels with their seven last plagues. Um, Yeah, it's like he's reassuring himself as well as his audience that these are the last because with them God's wrath is completed And last chapter we saw some pretty ugly stuff, like Adrian didn't really go into detail with it, because it's pretty ugly, but there's a great harvest of the earth which results in blood as high as a horse's bridle, so lots of people die. Um, On top of all the stuff we've seen previously with the seven trumpets and uh, the seven seals. So he's kind of reassuring us that the dark tunnel is over, the wrath of God is completed just as soon as we get through these last seven plagues. Now another reason I love that particular verse is it's a wonderful um exemplar verse of the character of god i think god gets a bad rap a lot of the time Uh, far too often i meet students that think the only the only idea they have of god is this cranky old man in the sky that just loves to punish people any chance he gets he wants to smash them, and he runs the fun police called the church as well (laughs) so they don't really like him very much but that's total bad rap that's not true This verse shows that God does not love to punish. His wrath does have an end, and He won't punish unjustly. There is a point where all injustice and evil will be done for and punished, but after that, He doesn't keep going. He stops. You know, it's complete. He's satisfied. And so Revelation turns a corner here in 15 with the promise that God's wrath will be complete once these last seven angels have poured out their plague. So, let's meet the angels. Drop down to verse 6 in 15. So ignore the song for the moment. Out of the temple came seven angels with seven plagues. They were dressed in clean shining linen, wore golden sashes on their chests. That's all we're really told about them. So we're not told, uh, like, it's not a mighty angel like the guy that was standing, you know, across the earth and the sea from way back. It's not one of the living creatures. These are just angels. That's all we're told. But they are seven holy messengers chosen to enact the last part of God's wrath on the earth. Now, looking at the whole chapter, there's a bit of a flow here in the way things happen. So, look at it with me. So, first off, he sees the angels. That's the very first thing that happens. John sees the angels, and then he sees some saints standing around this glassy sea, and then they start to praise God with a song and some harps, and then the the angels are released. They're given their bowls of God's wrath and sent out. Have we seen this sort of ceremony or pattern before? You're going to see yes. That wasn't a trick question. Don't ask, me where. <laughs> Don't ask me where. Who's been paying attention to Revelation so far? Saints anywhere? Yeah, that's here in this chapter. But this pattern of seeing angels, then the saints, there's something to do with the saints, and then um, they're given a judgment. What do you got, Nadine? Chapter 8. Thank you very much. So... I think you cheated and looked back because I said <laughs> chapter 8 earlier. If you were listening, <laughs> uh, you can't get past Nadine. But you were right, Luke, yes. And is correct as well. This is the second time this pattern happens with the saints. So I lost my place. Um, okay, go back to verse 8 with me for a second. Uh, chapter 8, verse 2. John sees the angels with their trumpets first. You see in 8 verse 2. And then another angel comes and presents the prayer of the saints on the altar in heaven, fills the censer with fire from the altar and pours that fire on the earth. That's verses 3 to 5 of chapter 8. And only then do the seven trumpeting angels go into action, blowing their trumpets and ensuing judgments occur one by one over the next few chapters, 8 through 11. Same pattern happens right here in chapter 15. John sees the seven angels in verse 1 then the saints, instead of just their prayers being offered, now it's them offering themselves offering praise, a song of worship. And then the angels go into action with the seven bowls filled with the wrath of God. So what does that teach us about God? That He likes pomp and ceremony? That He has a special order of how things happen? Maybe. I'd say that it just shows, again, that God is fully in control um, and that He has a certain way that He prefers to do things I like the fact that he does things in response to the saints. Last time in chapter 8, it was in response to their prayers being offered on the altar. Here, the judgment is enacted in response to their praise, their worship of God. I think that's really cool. It's like God wants to partner with us. He wants to have our prayers and our praise. And then he does the next things he's going to do. So another thing that God gets a bad rap for is just doing everything, you know, for himself and not ever considering others. That's not true. He loves to partner with people. He's been doing that since the beginning of time. So, the common theme of these two patterns is the sacrifice by God's people. It triggers God's judgment on the earth. First, in chapter 8, the prayers are offered as a sacrifice. This time, in chapter 15, the saints themselves offer the sacrifice. They sing their song. But look at who they are in verse 2. Those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of his name. So, these are people that are not just sacrificing their praise, when Revelation refers to someone being victorious over evil, it generally means they died for it, they had their heads chopped off or they were burned or whatever else, they were people that were victorious for Christ by losing their life. And I'd say that's exactly what this is referring to here, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of his name. I'd say these saints around the glassy sea are likely martyrs from the reign of the beast. They're probably actually the same group we saw in Revelation 14, referred to as the 144,000. Go back to 14 for a second, verses 1 to 3. Then I looked, and before me was the Lamb, standing on Mount Zion, with him 144,000, who had his name and his Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a sound from heaven like the roar of rushing waters, like a of, loud peal of thunder. The sound I heard was like that of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and the elders. No one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed for the earth, from the earth. Redeemed from the earth, victorious over the beast and the number of his name. I think it's the same group. Fast forward to chapter 15, we now have that same group. They're appearing in heaven alongside the glassy sea. They've now learned the song. They've got an instantaneous download of talent in harp playing, because um, that happens in heaven. <laughs> and they now sing this song with, with great gusto, with great enthusiasm to the glory of God. I think that's really cool. Like, this is a continuing flow. Like, these guys um, first, you know, they learn this song that no one else can learn, and then they worship God, and that worship of God triggers the next judgments on the earth, which martyred them. There's a perfect justice in the way that goes around. So, unfortunately, there has been some some bad pop culture that's come out of this verse. This is pretty much the main influence for the weird idea that all Christians do in heaven is sit around on clouds playing harps. (laughs) It's totally not true, but unfortunately, this verse has led to a lot of people believing that. Um, But that's nonsense. 14 just said this song could only be learned by the 144,000. It's the specific worship of a particular group of people with their own special praise song. But hang on a tick, we've got it written down here. So can't we learn it? (laughs) Maybe. Uh, But I think this is just the chorus. You know how the choruses get repeated and stuff? I think what John wrote down here was just what he remembered from hearing it lots of times. Um, If they'd written down the whole song, it probably would have taken a whole other book. Okay, so why is it referred to as the Song of God's Servant Moses and of the Lamb? Any ideas? It refers to all of God's law and all of what Jesus did. So, redemption, yep. Yeah. Any other ideas? No wrong ideas, you know me, I like feedback, so don't just look at me. Why would you call a song the Song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb? Referring to Jesus, obviously. He's the lamb. Yeah. So Adrian said, for the sake of the recording, it's a song of Jesus, but also a song of Moses. So because Moses gave the law and then Jesus fulfilled the law, so it's a wrapping them both up. And he's exactly right. Um, This is an all-encompassing song, if you like. It encompasses the worship of the Hebrews under the law, the song of Moses, but also um, the worship of the lamb, Jesus himself, his finished work, and everything that followed that. If you look at the wording of it it's not distinctively jewish it's not distinctively christian it's both it actually encompasses all worship of all time to god and i think that's really cool we have three songs recorded by moses in the bible they're in exodus 15 deuteronomy 32 and psalm 90 look at them later none of them have the same wording as this song here yet all of them have the same theme calling on the greatness and the holiness of god and his justice So it's the song of God's servant Moses because it reflects the heart of all Hebrew worship under the Old Covenant. And it's the song of the Lamb because it reflects the heart of Jesus, our sacrificial Lamb, who fulfilled those demands of God's law in His death on the cross. (laughs) Am I going too fast? Cool. So I like the fact that this worship um, celebrates the power and the justice of Almighty. He's King of the nations. You see that there. In one of the verses I think it's verse 4 I didn't write down the reference but yeah he's referred to as the king of nations not just the Jews Um, and this song serves to set the last seven judgments squarely in the context of God's justice for which he is worthy to be praised now go back again to 14 with me verses 6 and 7 Adrian dealt with this last week it's the first of the three angels So, verses 6 and 7 of chapter 14, "...then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. Worship Him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water." So, in 14, this angel proclaimed something called the eternal gospel um, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. It seems that the earth, however, does not respond. There's no record of the earth bowing the knee in chapter 14 or singing or worshipping. But these martyrs do. Heaven responds. And as these martyrs sing their new song in chapter 15, the seven angels are released to serve out the last of God's wrath on the earth. So earth stubbornly resists the eternal gospel while heaven and the saints respond with, all nations will come and worship before you for your righteous acts have been revealed. It's almost like a footnote or a... um, a conclusion, a response to this eternal gospel. Fear God and give him glory because hour of his judgment have come. They respond with, who will not fear you? All nations will come and worship you. So let's move along back in 15. Um, as the song draws to a close, John sees the temple in heaven is open. This is the second time this happens. The last one was back in chapter 11, verse 19. Uh, this is not an earthly temple. It's the temple of heaven itself. Um, John calls it the tabernacle of covenant law or some translations will have the tabernacle of testimony Um, or some will have tabernacle of witness but it seems very much like the tabernacle constructed by the Israelites where they met with God on their journey from Egypt to Canaan like I was saying lots of references to things have happened before so back in Revelation 11 verse 19 the other reference to this temple in heaven says God's temple in heaven was opened and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake and a severe hailstorm. So the temple in heaven is very much like the tabernacle. There is an ark of the covenant there, whether it's the one from earth that was made by the Israelites, who knows? I don't. But it's not referenced here in um, 15, but it is the same temple, the tabernacle of witness. So it's likely the ark might be there. Um, Some think that this is a direct link from um, chapter 11 to chapter 15, which tells us that... um, the seven bowl judgments we're about to have immediately follow the seven trumpet judgments because at the end of the seven trumpets heaven's temple was opened and here the temple is open but i'm not convinced i don't think it's important the temple could have been open that whole time so anyway interesting link if it is true though because that means the last couple of chapters that we've had all happen instantaneously basically at the same time but that is something we can't really know. Anyway, at last, the wrath of God is about to be completed. One of the four living creatures, we've seen these guys before, they're the guys that are around the throne of God, worship Him forever, their wings cover Him. One of the four living creatures pours the last of God's wrath into seven bowls and hands one to each angel. Song is ended, heaven is silent, and the smoke of the power and glory of God Almighty fills the temple. Again, this recalls a time, something that happened before. Back in Exodus, when they finished the tabernacle and Moses dedicated it, God's glory filled it with cloud like thick smoke. So thick that Moses physically couldn't enter the tabernacle. And it's the same here. No one can go into the temple until the judgments are completed. If you want to think of God's love and mercy as bright light welcoming, shining out, drawing people to him, think of his wrath and his judgment as thick billowing black smoke that physically bars people from his presence. That's what's going on here. No one can enter the temple while God's angry. But the last of his wrath is about to be put out. These angels are about to be released, and that happens next chapter. I imagine the hush and the awe spreading out across heaven as the smoke billows out and fills the temple. Heaven braces for the last great lash of God's justice on earth. And guess what earth does? What we've always done. An unrepentant, unrelenting earth doesn't even tremble. We keep on running helter-skelter to destruction with our fingers in our ears. The last plagues are coming. God's one last attempt to make the world listen. Bow the knee and repent is about to be enacted. The last seven plagues, the last of God's wrath. Now, that concludes the chapter. I don't actually have any more exegesis on this. To me, it's fairly simple, it's fairly straightforward. There's some worship that happens in heaven and in response to that, God pours the last of his wrath into some bowls and sends some angels out to judge the Earth. one last-ditch attempt to get people to repent. So what's the application for us? How do we do these words? Any ideas? Worship? Somebody is clued in. <laughs> Anything else? <laughs> yeah, maybe don't run around with their fingers your ears. What else? Tell people what's coming. Yeah. (laughs) Don't sell out, don't cave in. Tell people the gospel. Yeah, no wrong answers. There's, There's two ones that I take encouragement from here that I saw. There are plenty of applications that you can take. But to me, revelation, as I've said before, it's two things. It's a warning, a dire, severe warning. Like, we need to be serious about God and about what He's on about. We don't want to be on the wrong side of him when his wrath is poured out on the earth. It's also a blazing beacon of hope. King Jesus is coming back and we're on his team. He wins. I look forward to the return of the king. Insert Lord of the Rings reference here. But anyway, um, this chapter shows God in total control. He's following his plan. He's got an order for how things happen. He sets it up. It gets done. God's totally in control, so I can rest securely in the knowledge that He is never surprised, He is always prepared, and He always wins. That's my first one. So, don't worry, God's in control. Follow Him, stay on His side. And the second one is worship. This chapter really shows the power of praise. God is worthy of all praise, and He acts powerfully on behalf of His people when He's given His due. We saw that with the prayers of the saints being offered back in chapter 8. Ben, I think you did that one. Yep. Um, so when Ben preached that one, I remember he talked about like all the prayers that have ever been prayed being stacked up and then being offered to God on an altar. And the result of that is God gets angry on their behalf and he starts judging the earth. He's waited a long time. And the same thing happens here. When given his due praise, he goes right out. time's up. The rest of the earth needs to praise me like these guys do if they don't they need to be punished so live your life in a way of worship let everything you do bring glory to God because he's worth it and don't forget that these saints praising him have already been victorious they've already given their lives to be on his team so living victoriously means being on God's side at the cost of everything else if necessary so live your life in such a way as to bring glory and honour to the name of God. He alone is holy. It's right there in the song. And in the end, he wins. It says there, all nations will bow and worship him. So everything else should pale before our pursuit of the glory of God. God wins. The king is coming back. Be ready. To me, that is the whole message of Revelation. But I want to finish by just reading the song again because I think it's a marvellous pattern and I'm so grateful for Tim leading worship because his first song, pretty much this song, um, talking about the glory and the greatness of God. So I finish by reading the song again. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring glory to your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed that song should be our heart attitude who will not fear you lord and bring glory to your name for you alone are holy just and true are your ways great and marvelous are your deeds lord and holy father thank you we can only just begin to comprehend the wonder the awe the majesty of who you are just this majestic being that is beyond measurement beyond comprehension we can't even conceive of a place big enough to contain you and when you are When your glory and your power are shown, it physically restrains people from your presence. Lord, let us be people that bring glory to you. Let us live our lives in a way that is worthy of you. And let us be willing to lay them down so that we may be victorious for you. Be with us this week, Lord, as we go out and be your ambassadors, your representatives to those around us. And let us live in the light of your return, not in the darkness of our current tunnel. Amen.